0: Welcome to the Karen Instinct Podcast. This is a conversation with Christina Hardiman, the author of Dream Babies, a unique book that looks at the history of childcare advice through the centuries. Ever since the first baby through its first tantrum, there have been people telling us how we ought to look after our babies, she writes. So, of course, we wanted to talk to her. And now everything that could go wrong with this interview did. And it was my fault. My internet died. And when I managed to fix it and we were talking again, I realized 10 minutes in that I'd forgotten to press record. So, you know what Christina said? She said, Don't worry, Olga. I once interviewed Roald Dahl and forgot to start my recorder, which was very kind of her, but I was still gutted. I only had about 25 minutes of this amazing interview for you. And then she emailed me and graciously offered to record a part two. So, enjoy this and we'll have more for you soon. Christina, welcome.
1: Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you for asking me.
0: I'm so curious. You are a historian, and you say that you began writing this book as a young mother. So my question is, where did it come from, the idea? Because especially young parents can be so vulnerable to parenting advice, just taking it without questioning it often, because we don't have the confidence to take it with a pinch of salt. But you had the confidence to say, you know what, I'll do a history of that.
1: Well, I think one reason I um, wrote the book is because my whole habit of writing is researching and looking at the background of things. As I was beginning to have children, it made sense to look up the history of childcare advice. And although the accepted belief is that people, parents were very often very hard on their children, and very cruel and in the modern world, we do it all much better. What I discovered was that actually parents divided really between what you might call arm grip and comfortable lap parents, so people are different um that's one thing: the sort of parent that you're going to be it depends on the sort of person you are, uh, nor is there any rule I realize for bringing up a particular child in the right way. It's a bit reading a parent in advice book and expecting it to make um, fit your child is a bit like ordering false teeth through the post and hoping that they'll fit. Um, You all know, looking round at other parents and their children, how very different their children are from each other and how they are probably from you. So I I think the one message I hope people would take away from the book, was that the great thing is to think about yourself and what sort of parent you're like, you want to be, or you plan to be, and, and sticking to your guns, really. Because through the centuries, parents have taken completely different attitudes. There are, surprisingly, at the end of the 18th century, they were particularly You'd get affectionate and allowing their children to do whatever they liked because this was a time when the Enlightenment sense said you should let children grow up absolutely naturally. And so there's one famous politician whose baby son stamped along the dining table when everyone was eating, and it was regarded as quite acceptable. But times change, and when the church had a revolution and became much stricter, then parents became very anxious about their child going to heaven. Um, There's one rather blood chilling book which, which said, parents, as long as there is a grave in the churchyard shorter than your child, it is not too soon to begin strictness and bringing them up the way they should go. Not only does parenting advice change according to the times, if it's a time of great economic uncertainty, parents will both be working probably and looking after children is likely to be something that's done um, more from a distance. Whereas when after the war, when everything became uh, rich again and we all gained money, everybody became really spoiling perhaps and in indulging their parents, their children, just because they could. One needs to consider the times we're in as well as the fashions, the social influences that make people think they should do things one way or the other.
0: What I think your book shows so brilliantly is that parenting advice exists on several continua, one of them being between gentler parenting and harsher parenting something you mentioned at the beginning and of course it also depends on the personality of the parent and on the family but at the same time there is a trend that is set in time is that so?
1: Yes um, there's a very sensible book called uh, Toddler Taming written in the Mm. 1960s and what it points out is that parents have their limits I mean you can give so much to your child you can take so much There comes a point where you're feeling really pressured by behavior that really goes beyond what you think is acceptable. And what the book very sensibly says is the great thing is to put down a marker that that's not acceptable before it gets so close that you end up in a tantrum yourself, which never works well. Well, it often happens as a parent.
0: What it makes me wonder is, I think, I wonder if that's your estimation as well, in the last 15 years, we've been in the time of gentle parenting, the more gentle gentle approaches. And what I've been noticing recently, the advocates of gentle parenting are now starting, for example, their posts on social media with things like gentle parenting Is not permissive parenting, and then they basically start apologizing almost and saying, No, we do have boundaries for children, and all that. I wonder if this is the start of the pendulum swinging back to harsher times, and I'm worried about that. Well, in a sense,
1: as you know, one of the metaphors I use is a pendulum swinging, depending Mm. if times are. Prosperous economically, in which case you can afford to be gentler, gentler, and give give way more, and give your child um, more of the things they want. to harsher parenting, which would mean that the economy was getting under pressure, which of course, at, just at the moment, it is now. Um, but yeah, I think that the business of both parents going out to work and feeling guilty. I think one should bear in mind that through the centuries, children. Have very often not been given total attention by either one or both parents because they have been probably working harder than we do. Mothers used to have to work very hard around the home and the garden and so on, and men were out in the fields and away. It isn't probably isn't ideal for parents to sit with their children all day, not being in any way subservient to them. I always think it's sort of important that children, rather than being the centre of attention, which very often upsets them, um, they see their parents getting on with. So and they've been given occupations that they can do. The parents do have lives and that the child is learning from watching those lives.
0: So that is another continuum, the more parent-centred approaches and the more child-centred approaches.
1: Yes, that's right. As you say now, we are probably maximum Child centered approach, the number of mm. outings children make to different groups or occupations, or learning the violin or skating. Parents seem to be almost sort of racing around all the time because these things seem to be on offer. They feel they must get them, offer them to their children.
0: And I wonder if it's to also our view of human nature that is reflected very often in parenting advice and. The one that's informing this approach is that there's so much potential in the child. Yes. Mm. And it's up to the parent to foster it, to help the child discover it, or to discover it without helping anyone to take the lead there. Yes, and yet
1: parents, particularly as the children get into nursery or into early years of school, they often have a sense that they're losing touch with their child, that somehow the system is taking over the whole role mm. of the parent. It's can be a sense of loss.
0: Yes, that's a cultural thing too, because, for example, in the UK, homeschooling is quite an established practice, but there are countries like Germany that do not allow it at all, where the system takes over in a way. And there's also another continuum is how much trust is given um, to families in a particular culture and in a particular country.
1: That's right. I mean, the extreme is the kibbutz system, where the children are sent completely away from the parents. Uh, And that's not something that's often happened in in Britain. Uh, But, of course, because we're now a very diverse society, there are a lot of almost competing uh, traditions of parenting um, that parents may find it quite difficult to go along with the um, state um, tradition when they've got completely different ideas coming from their own cultures.
0: Yes, we had, and we still have boarding schools, the same idea, I suppose, uh, sideline the parents, the family completely.
1: Well, they, they rose up in the 19th century and they were um, one aspect of the, the fact that parents had so many children. And particularly when health conditions were getting better, more and more children were surviving. And it's very interesting now that, in a sense, one reason parenting used to be much stricter than it was, was because there were more children in the family. I can remember going to see a friend um, at my daughter's primary school, and she had 11 children. And the house was organized like a military camp, you know, with notices everywhere, uh, necessarily. And bearing in mind that now um, people have far fewer children, there is a problem in a way that all your eggs are in one basket and so you get much more anxious. You've only got one chance or two chances uh, to do your best. What do do you feel that a new consideration is whether you should have children at all.
0: I love the freedom of choice. We're not by any stretch of imagination an endangered species. So on a large scale, suppose if there's fewer people in general, that's not the end of the world.
1: Well, I mean, that's... one of the anxieties, of course, is the end of the world. And and if yeah, we're really heading for exactly. disaster, should we commit children and grandchildren to that. I think I there's think a are quite depressing considerations. I mean, the only comfort I can offer is that having studied history for several centuries, people have always thought that. They've always thought we the, world are the was end about of about to collapse. Yeah, this is the end. I, I have a feeling that it's something you do when you realize that you're coming to your own end and you don't really want the world to go on without you, but that's very flippant. But it. I think that it's quite easy to be a bit too economically minded about children. I mean, clearly, if you, for some reason, perhaps in your own childhood, you really don't like the idea of having children, that's absolutely your privilege. But it's worth listening to people who have had children. And, of course, there's so many joys of having children. The sad thing now is that there's been an awful lot of concentration on the problems. But, in fact, the quiet joys of parenthood are manifold. And and continue for a very long time, and then there's grandchildren and life getting more and more interesting. And then the prospect in your old age of having children and grandchildren and maybe great grandchildren. You feel a little bit like a tree, you know, with your, your <laughs> roots going right down and somehow holding firmly to be part of
0: and you're branching out. The
1: earth. Yes, yeah, the opposite of a family tree. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. The involvement of fathers, is this also a continuum or can we millennials actually take credit for that?
1: I think Uh, that is a tremendous achievement. And mm. from the time when I was married, fortunately, my husband, in fact, took up teaching, (laughs) whereas I was sticking to writing. So we were both in jobs where we had a lot of time to spare for our children. And one thing that now happens, and I'm hugely impressed by having got four sons-in-law, is how much they do with the children and how Mm. part of the children's lives on every level, you know, not nappy changing, you know, going out shopping with them, feeding them, all sorts of levels. I think there's been a much more move to equality of taking responsibility as a parent, and not always, and not in all society, parts of society. But I do think, as you say, it is a terrific achievement.
0: And it's a too new, isn't it? That's mm. not happened before in the West. Mm. Well what what's made it possible again are those domestic
1: improvements with all the mm. machines, the, the shops, the supermarkets all right. Make reducing what's the work in the home has made it much easier for both parents to be at work and for both to take responsibility. After all, I mean, if the mother isn't at work, it's quite reasonable for her to take domestic responsibility. But yeah. if, you know, what else is she going to do, embroidery or something? So exactly, I think that, that's, that if both parents, then a sense of fairness arises. And that's one reason why men, if they have a heart at all, are doing their bit.
0: Absolutely. And at the same time, women are taking a bigger role in parenting advice, because it used to be women do all the childcare, but (laughs) the experts are, of course, men. And a lot of them doctors, I love that you point that out, that when a medical doctor takes on the role of a parenting advice, they've got even more weight to throw about.
1: Yes, I think that's a very happy change. Well, Although there were, but uh, they were few and far between the, the writers on childcare um, who were women. Most of them were men, um, and they, most of them were doctors. And of course, one reason was one priority then was keeping children alive. And so a, mm. a doctor's medical knowledge was important. So the, it wasn't without reason that, uh, but it did lead to a sort of idea that, you know, you bring up a child. For that reason only, and that's, that's what the emphasis is. Um, whereas there are, there are so many different aspects of, of bringing up a child. That's right up through till, well, Dr. Spock was probably a, a very f- forgiving and permissive father and parent. But after that, interestingly, some of the first prominent women childcare writers, like Miriam Stoppard, being a mm-hmm. working woman, she took quite a sort of organized and strict approach to what, how you should bring up your children. Whereas Penelope Leach, who didn't go out to work, she got an awful scare. One of her children um, got meningitis and nearly died. And that sort of startled her, but made her intensely concerned with parenting. And her very long and detailed books, and excellent in, in many, many ways, do in a sense reflect her position. I always found it fascinating to look into the background of the people who were writing the childcare books. Because that is very illuminating. Uh, That's worth doing.
0: One of my favorite uh, in your book is the biography of John Watson, the father of uh, (laughs) behaviourism. And what a biography it is. What I found really curious was with behaviourism, he, as you say, jettisoned the mind. The... (laughs) In a world, the emotions, that was completely gone. It's stimuli and response. You get a particular behavior by positive reinforcement and negative consequences. And then when his turbulent life threw him into advertising, what he thrived on was the understanding that we make emotional choices, not rational ones. And we buy a product, you say, because how it makes us feel, not any kind of a rational assessment of whether we need it or not. So, the an example you gave of his uh, marketing is: caring mothers use J&J talcum powder for their babies. Poor mothers flocked to buy the talcum powder because it was inside. Yes. Own... Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah that, that's that's that, what that. you do if you want be...
1: to be a better mother. That you had to yes. use these products. And that's, that's been, of course, a hallmark of advertising ever since. I mean, advertisements for so many absolutely. Child, child products are built around the smiling mother being wonderful and the child okay. grateful and so on. Um, yes, uh, the whole marketing industry is um, quite depressing.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And his own book, he uh, marketed as the book. Th- Dedicated to the first mother who brings up a happy child.
1: Yes. The idea How of manipulative happiness. is I mean, that? Yes, it's very, very manipulative. But the, other, the idea of happiness? I, I think it's connected with him as well, the story of letting your child be playing in the yard, um, messing around, but not letting it be seen that you're watching it but having a sort of periscope arrangement so you could actually be watching it when it couldn't see you be watching it. I love that story. That's, I like it. (laughs) Well, we could consider it. Uh, The the idea was, um, one of the other books said, we want our children to be self-starters. This is at that time, the 1920s. Mm. We want them to be able to take responsibility to act on their own, not always to be, told what to do by us. Now, that's actually something, wouldn't be a bad idea to revive, actually.
0: That's quite reasonable, isn't it? To take our influence off a little bit, especially knowing just how much we have in this mm. close relationship over our children. And, um, yeah, even though missing out completely on the emotions in the mind is a big one for me. And.
1: Yes. Mm. Yet,
0: and yet, behaviorism is so logical that it just won't die nearly well, it, 100 it, years it, later. Well, it's horribly
1: predictable that people, yeah. people will will uh, react in those sort of ways. How yeah. many children have you got, Olga?
0: I've got two. I've got an eight-year-old and two-year-old, two boys. That's... that's um, Two completely
1: different lives you're looking after, aren't you? Eight and two.
0: Absolutely, yes. I wonder how it was for you doing the research for the book, writing the book, having written the book. This is an absolutely unique perspective. I don't know of another book like this, The History of Parenting Advice, written for parents as well. I know sort of professional books that are part of courses in psychology, like the Developing Mind, the Theories of Mind, but something that's written for parents What perspective did it give you?
1: Well, it was, in fact, a wonderful distraction from my own children that um, (laughs) I I was studying all these mad theories of parenting and occasionally I got a bit infected. So they'd have a very strict month when I was reading uh, about uh, John Watson. And then they would have a very indulgent month when I was reading about Benjamin Spock. Uh, I love it, it. it. I think what my book tries to do... It's very light-hearted. It's got lots of um, points out, lots of jokes and contradictions, um, and it it is very easy reading. Um, And it's been—it led me into a, a lovely life of journalism and talking about children and that sort of thing. Although it was not a book of advice, it is not a book of advice. I think implicitly, it lets you make your mind up. Oh, I see. All right. Well, I don't need to take that necessarily to heart. I can see the thing in perspective, which is what history does for you. And I think I end up by saying with Dr. Spock, who's often reviled, but he starts off his books, uh, his famous book, uh, When You're a, a Mother, Trust Yourself. You know more than you think you do.
0: Absolutely. And I love the name of the book dream babies as opposed to your very real babies. Yes. <laughs> Remembrance of them? Yes.
1: It, it, it comes from a, a book by a now very forgotten essayist called Charles Lamb. We remember Charles and Mary's Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare, but Charles Lamb wrote a book, a very wistful book, called Dream Children because they, he had no children. And it struck right. me that actually the idea of perfect children, or indeed perfect parents, was a dream and that these the books the manuals on baby care encourage you to think you can create a dream baby which of course you can't but they're very fun anyway
0: and it's just such a reminder that a baby from the book is a dream baby and it's the author's dream baby (laughs) and even if you buy into that dream your child is a very real person yeah thank you so much christina